I sit all day and have entrepreneurs tell me they're going to disrupt the XYZ, you know, huge thing. No one's going to help you achieve the thing that you want to do if you don't tell them that that's the thing you want to do. Dream big and then own it and just be like, yeah, I'm going to go start a company. I'm going to go be a nurse, not be a nurse, whatever it is that you want to do. That's definitely been helpful for me. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Minnie Ingersoll, to our show today. Minnie is an investor, co-founder, and former CEO of Shift, an online marketplace for used cars. After 12 years at Google, working as a product manager and later principal with Google.org, Minnie co-founded Shift in 2013 while she was on maternity leave. Minnie shares that she never thought she'd be a founder and she never thought she'd be a founder in the used car industry, but the opportunity to build a business from scratch was exciting to her. Minnie took the company from an idea to over $100 million in revenue and the company most recently went public. After five years at Shift, Minnie decided to do a career change once again and is now taking her skills and investing in early stage founders at 10110 Ventures. We'll chat with Minnie about how she built her emotional resilience in tough times, what it means to be burnt out and how to avoid it, and some advice that she gives all founders when meeting with investors and raising money. Welcome to the show, Minnie. Yasmin, glad to be here. Thanks. And I'm excited our worlds collided and you're in LA. You also have an amazing podcast and it's great to finally take this time to go through your journey because like I mentioned before the call, there's so much to talk about. So I'm excited for our listeners to learn more about your background. Absolutely. Well, you know, I listen to yours, so it's great. It's great to collide. Absolutely, it is. Well, on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. So you grew up in Pasadena, which is actually close by here in LA, and you mentioned you grew up in a quote-unquote nerdy family. Can you share more about what you mean by that and what your upbringing was like? Yeah, um, definitely nerdy. I don't, I don't think that's a stretch for my family. So my dad's a professor at Caltech, and I went to school at Poly, which is actually Polytechnic, which 100 years ago used to be part of Caltech. And I grew up with a bunch of Caltech grad students, and I have four siblings, and my parents are both academics, and my siblings all mostly became academics and work at universities. Um, And, you know, it was just a lot of, like, playing bridge at night, and no one went out and, you know, went out to dinner. We all stayed home and, like, milked the goats and stuff. (laughs) But that was L.A., you know, but that was still, you know, what I was doing in L.A. here in the 70s, 80s. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear, you know, I didn't know your siblings are all professors or in academia. And you definitely, I would say, would be the black sheep because you kind of went and we'll get into it. You know, the tech world, entrepreneur, now VC. So what is that like for you? (laughs) That's funny. No, I totally am the black sheep. I once. Oh, my God. So many things I. most of my siblings have advanced degrees. And I said to them, like, I have an advanced degree too. And they're like, oh no, you went to business school. (laughs) It it doesn't really count in my family. Um, I also tried to say I was an engineer and my dad was like, oh, well, computer science, like it's not even engineering. I definitely think that there's um, some skepticism of business in my family, but I was always very vaguely attracted to it. Um, But it was all very vague. Like, I didn't have any idea what business was or was about. Um, 
which probably I think maybe if I'd been more exposed to it, I would have had a better sense of where I was going. But, um, you know, my life has been reasonably unplanned because I didn't really know what the possible courses were. So it's it's been sort of a series of figuring out kind of what's right in front of my face that looks really attractive. Yeah. And that's what I really love about your particular story. And we'll unfold that in a bit. But exactly, you kind of went on one path, did really well, and were really open-minded about what the next opportunity could be. So your life is definitely full of uh, exciting and different opportunities, which I love. So you grew up in this academic family, you get accepted to Stanford, study computer science, and you actually opened up about how the first semester was actually pretty hard for you. And you were thinking about dropping out. So can you take us back to that journey? Because I think going to college and your experience at Stanford really set you up for, you know, what was yet to come in your in your professional career. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I not only thought about dropping out, I really did drop out. Wow, I didn't know. <laughs> um, well, I dropped out, but then if you drop out for a semester and then you go back to school, then they just call it stopping out and no one's any the wiser. And so I stopped out technically um, for a semester and moved back home with my parents in Pasadena. And, you know, at the time I really thought my life was over. I'd always wanted to go to Stanford. I'd always wanted to go to college. I thought I wasn't going to graduate college. But I was also, however old you are when you're a freshman in college, like 18 or 19 or something. And so, you know, everything seemed more dramatic, I think, to me at the time. Life is kind of a roller coaster. And I got really depressed when I was a freshman at Stanford. And, but then, you know, the the lesson there for me was like, you know, I kept going and sort of people put me back on my feet. And I think... I learned a lot from that experience and became a better person in a lot of ways. And then, great. And then I graduated with a degree from Stanford and, you know, and that all just looks good from the outside. You talk a lot about pushing through really tough times. And I think you thinking about getting out of college was really the first time you experienced difficult moments. So I'm curious, looking back at that time, were there any tools or things you did that really helped you get into a better mental state and go back to school? Because once you graduated, so much of your life and success came shortly after that. Yeah, no, I don't think there were like helpful tools really. Like I felt like it was a really dark place for me and it was just one foot in front of the other. And it was like, I'm going to hate this. I don't like it. But at the same time, I have to get out of bed. Um, the other thing was the, the, the real turning point for me was actually being able to open up about what was going on and then the help from others. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think I would have gotten through that time if it hadn't been for help from others. And so that's a big lesson. And I'm a big talker anyways. <laughs> um, and so being able to talk about what was going on and then people can help you. It turns out that it's much harder for people to help you if you're not willing to talk about what's going on. So those were my main tools. And it sounds like just perfect lessons also in the world of entrepreneurship, right? Really tough, one foot after the other, willingness to be open and get support from others. I mean, honestly, that's how I've even managed to, to stay in the startup world. So I think those are such great lessons you learned very early in your life. Yeah, I have. I mean, lots of that. We'll get to it at shift, but there were a lot of times it was hard and I didn't want to do it. And it was still, well, you know what? We're going to show up at work and we're going to do the hard thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And you build a stamina for that too. It turns into a muscle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you graduated from Stanford, you stayed up in the Bay Area, you worked at a company that went public right before the dot-com burst, which is pretty interesting. And you decided to go to business school at the time. So I know you grew up in a family of academics and maybe that is what was expected from you. But at that moment, what did it feel like for you to be in this new economic environment that was more challenging? Mm. And how did you decide to go back to business school? 
the the dot com economy had just burst. It was two thousand. Business school again. I didn't know what it was. It and it was just this vaguely super exciting. Harvard Business School let me in. I visited the campus. It's these beautiful brick buildings that look like every postcard of what you think, you know, Harvard Business School might look like. And that was just exciting to me. I had no idea what, I really didn't know the difference between consulting and banking was actually still fairly obscure to me. And not that either turned out to be super appealing. Um, but I think that now a big value that I didn't know I'd get many different things I didn't know I'd get from business school, but one is a bit of just the confidence of knowing that there isn't some big secret to business that I missed out on. Like, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine when people who are technical, let's say, say, well, I don't know how to create a business model. And you're like, you can, like, you know how Excel works or, you know, Google Sheets, like you can do this. Um, and so I think for me, that was a lot of the value of just sort of that exposure. And I think you can get exposure in so many different ways. You don't necessarily have to go to business school or go get your master's. You can have exposure by different jobs and putting yourself in different situations. I took the GMAT twice. Sorry, dad, I didn't end up going to business school. But I think, you know, me going, living in New York, going through my finance career really gave me the confidence that I can pursue, you know, whatever I wanted to, but it can all be done in different ways. Can I pick up on that too? Which yeah. is my other pet peeve is people who say I'm not technical enough. And so I can't really understand how this API works. And you're like, you know what? My degree's in computer science, so people think I'm technical, but it's from 20, maybe 25 years ago. And like, I can program Pascal. And like, that's not a relevant thing. And in tech, everything is changing every couple of years. So if you actually, you know, want to learn whatever's going on in tech today, everyone's still learning. Everyone's kind of a beginner in cryptocurrency or in whatever, you know, it didn't exist five years ago. So Yes. So I'm just a believer in you can constantly learn and you can't sort of hide behind the fact that you didn't, you know, go to whatever XYZ school. Totally, totally. And I think to your point, you know, unknown always seems scary. It's like, I don't even know where to start with business, like creating a business plan or getting more technical. And I think as you dig a little bit deeper, and I always say Google's my best friend, there's so many resources out there. And you start to realize, oh, it's not a big deal. Business practices, tech is always changing. Um, so, you know, whether you have a certification or going to school, I think there's definitely more there. So I, I completely agree with what you're saying. So you graduate from business school, you actually started working at Google, which seems like a great job. And at the time, it was only about, I think, 500 people when you joined. And I'm sure there's so much to unpack there. But what was the experience like really jumping aboard a rocket ship of a startup? You know, you were there for 11 years. The company had 60,000 employees when you decide to leave. So I'm sure there's a lot of experience that you can share. But what would you say were some of the two or three fundamental themes or lessons that you really took from your experience at Google? One was definitely people. And so Google really beat into us, all of us, how much hiring was a part of everyone's job. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you said, I joined when it was 500 and we doubled in size uh, every six months or something for the first couple of years. And so everyone's job was hiring. And that meant interview feedback had to be into the system in 36 hours. And that was just the rule. And now the people are everything. And so, you know, that that would be sort of the fundamental thing I learned there. And Google now, I think, has it's something like 5,000 people just in people ops. Wow. Just in that department. And so, you know, a lot of what I learned, I didn't know I was learning. But when I went to start Shift, a lot of these sort of 
people ops processes, I just copied from Google. So why try to reinvent how people do OKRs or how we do performance reviews? Um, and so a lot of that, I just was able to copy. Another thing is right now, I would say Google was awesome and had awesome people on just this big thinking, like this notion of self-driving cars seemed crazy when it first came up. And it really, to me, came up first from Google. Like there was already DARPA, but, you know, Google had this ability to like sort of, you'd come with some idea and Sergey would say, if it's not a $5 billion idea, you're just talking to me about some little feature over here. And, and Google had a lot of similarities to venture capital. Like Google at some scale needed to think any initiative we undertake now needs to be a multi-billion dollar initiative for it to even move the needle in the same way, in interesting ways, how venture capital funds are often structured, which is they need to be investing in these huge bets um, because everyone's raised huge funds. That's true. And I also think it's relevant to think really big when it comes to your own personal and professional goals. And I think that's a muscle that you need to work on. You know, if you want to get something done or if you want to do something in your life, it's like, how can you even think bigger? Because I truly, and I'm very passionate about this, feel like anything in life is possible with hard work. So it's interesting to see from your experience at Google, how much of that big idea mentality is probably ingrained in your own mind. So talking about Google, the idea for you to leave the company and join this new concept and idea called Shift really happened when you were on maternity leave. So what inspired you to jump ship and leave a pretty lucrative career and reputation you built over 10 years at Google to join this idea and startup? So, um, so there's different thoughts there. So one is... I didn't totally make the decision. It sort of snuck up on me. And so when I left Google, I was just going on maternity leave, which was a very logical thing to do because I was nine months pregnant. Um, <laughs> and I had Angel invested into Shift when it was just my buddy, George. So George, who's my co-founder and now the CEO, in fact, always was the CEO, he had worked for me at Google. Um, I, I remind him of that because then, of course, when we started Shift, I worked for him. So um, <laughs> So George, and now he's a public company CEO, which is crazy yeah. um, and, and great. But uh, so George had worked for me at Google and had been talking about this idea for Shift. Not exactly the same idea as it turned out, but a similar idea around used cars. And I wrote him an angel check when it was really just a PowerPoint um, and not much else. And so then when I was on maternity leave, I thought like, I'll take six, seven months off. This is my first baby. I don't know what to expect. Um, and it turns out, you know, maybe three months into that, I was looking for some social interaction, some intellectual stimulation, and um, and George was looking for some help to kind of get things to the next level. So I just started showing up. George lives down the street from me. I sh started showing up at his house at 10 a.m. every day. And then I just like got more and more excited about building a business, which I'd shipped product, but shipping a business essentially is a whole different set of skills. And I felt like my brain was really pushed. And, and I think I was craving that from a lot of baby time. And, and so one thing kind of led to another. And all of a sudden I was, you know, working 10 hours a day on shift. And so some of that happened. But also when I talk to people now or when I think about different career transitions, one of my friends describes it. I don't know if you like this analogy, but he describes it as like an airplane has like a liftoff speed, which is I think your T1 speed or it's like the T1 marker where an airplane takes has liftoff. 
And he sort of says certain things have to be in place um, for you to, let's say, leave your cushy job at Google to go somewhere else. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's that your side hustle is um, making some, you know, amount of money for you. Or maybe it's that, you know, your spouse has some stability in his or her career. Or, you know, there's certain things that might need to be in place. And for me, without knowing it, a lot of those things were in place that made it possible and even attractive for me to stop commuting from San Francisco to Mountain View um, and instead, you know, set up a company that was super flexible on me bringing my baby to the office because the office was essentially my co-founder's living room. So all of those things were really in place. For sure, for sure. And I know you talked about never in a million years would you ever have thought you would even be in the used car industry. So I'm curious, what was super exciting about this? Because I feel like sometimes a lot of people get stuck on getting into a certain industry versus what you're doing day to day or the opportunity itself. Yeah. And I probably, for the most part, still don't have a great passion for used cars. I don't know whether it's gone up or down after working in used cars for... (laughs) Um, for many years, but there are different things about building a business. So on my podcast, I actually had a guest, Ariane Schutte from Core Innovation. I said, if you could start any business, what would it be? And he says, it would be a business that employed thousands of people and gave them benefits and equity in the company and just treated them really well and created great jobs. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether that's in used cars or manufacturing toothpaste. So I think there's some of those elements to building a business that can be about how do you create a great institution, if you will, uh, that fulfills a lot of goals, whether it's used cars or toothpaste. Now, it turns out there's a lot of interesting things going on in used cars. Like it's, it actually is quite technical, the, the business that we set out to build. So it was a very good fit for, for me getting a lot of fulfillment in terms of um, being able to actually feel like my skills move the needle forward, which I think is one of the things you, you want to feel like you're being useful. Your brain is being put to good use. Totally. And I think that's just good for people to listen as they're thinking about switching their careers or building a business. There's so many different ways to approach it. So I I love that perspective. And I know you also had a story early days of shift when you're still on maternity leave, when you were actually trying to sell your car. So I'd love for you to talk about that because I think it really shows the need in that space prior to shift really existing. Right. I don't want to say that there weren't reasons why I got passionate about shift. So this was actually... Maybe before shift, it really even started. So I was nine months pregnant. So I was pre-maternity leave and I was trying to sell my car and upgrade to some like much more boring, you know, minivan type thing. Um, and nine months pregnant and strange men were, I was trying to sell my car on Craigslist, which is still, you know, it's, it's nearly a trillion dollar industry. And most people when they're selling their car peer to peer are selling it on Craigslist. So they're meeting some stranger in a McDonald's parking lot. Right. And so I'm nine months pregnant. And strange men, for whatever reason, it was all men were showing up at my house. And I was like, do I give them the keys to my BMW, which is what I had at the time? Do I give them the keys to my BMW and let them drive away with it? Or do I jump in the car nine months pregnant while they like drive it as fast as they can around the city? And neither seemed like great options to me. Um, And so I was like, wow, I need a better solution. Um, but then, you know, in the early days of shift, we ended up selling a lot of like my friends' cars and, and, or people who were like one degree away and people were really thankful. A lot of people really didn't want to go through the hassle of getting rid of their, their car themselves and they wanted an easier solution and a better price. And, you know, it felt good to be able to help out people who, you know, at first it was my friends and then it was like other mothers who like didn't have the time to like deal with selling cars themselves. So 
no, it was it was fulfilling on many different levels. Yeah, you mentioned that it was surprising how the gratitude that people expressed was really something that you enjoyed being at Shift. So it's great to hear how you were really bringing that amazing customer experience and changing people's lives. And it sounds small, but you know, my grandmother called me and wants to sell her used car. I'm like, Shift is perfect for that situation. That's right, Yasmin. Shift.com. Just yeah. tell your exactly. in there. Yep. <laughs> I love it. So you decided to leave Google and join Shift. And if I read this correctly, I believe you didn't go down the fundraising path in terms of raising from friends and family. And you talk about how the first 500,000 was really difficult for you. So can you take us through the journey of how you guys thought about fundraising in the early days of the business and any lessons you learned along the way? Yeah. So we did raise from from friends and family, in fact. And, and that was actually quite important. And I um, because I think about how much obligation I felt from raising from friends and family. And so, you know, I raised from my high school math teacher, right? It was friends and family. Like it was, and then, you know, you can't, you just don't take that lightly. Like I know the people who gave us our first 25K here and there, a lot of them, you know, are friends, but more were friends than family. But, um, but uh, you know, that that was how we raised our first small amount of money. And then, you know, one of the things we did that served us very well was we just started buying and selling cars on Craigslist. And so with a couple hundred K, you can actually buy a fair number of cars on Craigslist and then you can sell them on Craigslist. And, you know, we didn't own shift.com at the, at the time and we just bought cars on Craigslist and we parked them outside of George's apartment first. And then we had parked them. There was a Costco parking lot that you could buy monthly passes for. So, you know, we were parking them in front of George's parking lot, but then there's street cleaning every other Wednesday and you have to move the cars that you don't recognize the cars because they're not your car. And you have to like, remember which Toyota Corolla you're supposed to be moving. Um, all of that. But that is to say with not that much money, we were able to buy cars on Craigslist, sell them on Craigslist. And at first there was definitely some debate about, is this really interesting? Like, we're not doing anything that hasn't been done by car flippers throughout eternity. Um, but it turns out that we learned a ton just doing that. And it led to many things down the road that allowed us to actually raise real funding to build a real business. Because once we did that, we sort of knew where the business needed to go. But I, you know, we didn't know that starting out that that was going to lead we might have just been car flipping for for the next seven years, but I probably would have left earlier had had that had it turned out that way. Totally. And what I love about that story is that that's how businesses start. And some people think you have this big audacious goal and you need everything in place to really get it off the ground. But it really starts with just proving the concept. And you guys, you know, we're buying cars, selling it off of Craigslist, like before even having your own website, your own marketplace. So I think it's just a good reminder that whatever you want to do, you know, starting out small and really proving out the concept, understanding the industry is so helpful. So I love to kind of hear your journey through that. And I know once you proved the concept, you really understood a little bit about where Shift was going. You went down to Sandhill Road to really raise money from top VC and investors. I would love to hear your experience and some advice that you got. I know there's this quick calculation you mentioned in another interview in terms of looking at their fund size, multiplying by 50. So I think that is fascinating. And I would love to hear that calculation and your experience really going down Sandhill Road. Yeah. So a few things happened. So one, the business then started to pick up in interesting ways. So it seemed more plausible that we should go to Sand Hill Road. And my first thing I will say was I found it 
hard, scary, mostly scary, intimidating. I felt very like rube-like for no good reason, right? Like it wasn't, I didn't... I didn't encounter, you know, rudeness or anything like that, but just, you know, you show up, you're on someone else's home turf, you walk into their fancy office and, you know, you're kind of two scrubby people who've been selling used cars. And so that's, that's just where I'll start. And, you know, it's a, it's a large partnership. You're usually going to their Monday meetings, which is like where they decide who gets money and you pitch for 20, 30 minutes and then they quiz you, you know, they, they quiz you and you're supposed to think quickly on your feet, which I'm not, I'm not always all that quick on my feet, which is, you know, a skill I trying to learn still. Um, but uh, so that's where I'll start. Yes. So dividing by 50 it's, uh, is what I was told. And it sticks with me to this day. And it's still reasonably true, which is <laughs> take the fun size, divide by 50. And that's the size check that someone wants to write. And it's not, and you know, things have changed some, you know, a fair amount even since we raised our, our seed in 2013. Um, but generally uh, we you know, we at 10.110, we're a 50 million size fund and we're going to write a million dollar check. And the idea is you want to have about 25 companies in your portfolio um, and you write a million dollar check, but then you reserve about the same amount for follow on funding in later rounds. So mm-hmm. not everyone reserves one to one exactly, but vaguely that math approximately works. So we raised our series A um, from two firms who both put in eight million each, we raised a twenty million Series A, and they both had four hundred million dollar funds. So the math approximately works. Yeah, that's that's definitely good advice. And it's interesting when you were talking about going into you know their offices or fancy offices and partner meetings. You mentioned how really one mission for you is to make business more friendly per se, right? And I love love your opinion on that because I completely agree. And it's not about there should be you know I definitely think there should be more women in entrepreneurship and venture capital. But really, your thesis around making it more friendly mm. is awesome. I would love for you to talk more about that because it just reminded me as you were speaking about your experience working with these partners in the past? Well, you know, I like that phrasing. I'm not sure I'd said that exactly, but I really like that. I think I just try to live my life in a friendly way. Um, And I don't know if I try to or whether I was sort of born as like my other life as a Labrador retriever or something, but that's just who I am. Um, But yeah, no, I think about the structure of business today, and that's raising venture capital or you know, at Google, it was, how do you get your project prioritized? Um, And the way that decisions are made still has a lot of banging the table, if you will. Um, And so I think about, um, you know, are we prioritizing projects or funding entrepreneurs who are the best at coming into the room, pitching, selling, pounding the table and acting really confident in their five-year projections? Um, And I don't think we're going to create you know, uh, an inclusive society if we only uh, sort of prioritize the people who are good at banging the table. And I think a lot of that actually is changing in different ways. I think it's actually interesting how Zoom is changing things, Mm. which is you're no longer on someone else's home turf. Like Zoom is neutral territory. And I personally actually find it less intimidating to, but, you know, if if we're talking to LPs, we're meeting them on Zoom, which isn't, you know, showing up at someone else's place. Um, and I think the same thing is true with entrepreneurs. You're not sort of all marching into the Sequoia office. You're meeting on Zoom. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting change that's going on. 
Yeah, that is really interesting. I never thought about it like that, but it's true. You're definitely more comfortable in your territory and zooming in and having those conversations via video. I think that's a, a great point. So you guys officially raised around $20 million for your Series A. And I know at that point, the company grew massively after your first round of funding. And going back to your Google days, the focus was still the same in terms of recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. So I know you spent a lot of time in that aspect when you were at Shift. So I'd love to hear your perspective on any advice that you have for people who are interviewing? Because I'm sure, you know, looking at your experience, you've hired and probably fired so, so many people. So I'd love to get your viewpoint on that. Yeah. Um, hired a lot more than I fired, luckily. Um, <laughs> yeah, gosh, advice. On, so yes, I would say I spent a ton of time on recruiting. I also just spent a lot of time on people generally. And that's my lesson of like what makes a startup successful. I actually think it's more about people and communication. Um Advice for interviewing. So my first thought is um, you can be persistent. Now, maybe this doesn't work all of the time, but it doesn't hurt to try and you're not going to get the job if you're not trying, right? And so we hired some people who, you know, they were like salespeople, right? We were hiring salespeople a lot of time and they they put out like a 10-point drip campaign, right? Like there were people who just said, I am a car enthusiast. I know this is the company that I want to work for. And they were so convincing that they were like, you know, Minnie, I'm going to come work for you for free. I'm going to be your chief of staff. I'm going to do whatever. And that persistence um, pays off a lot of times. And, you know, it can be annoying, actually. And yet, I, and yet I think it serves a lot of people really well. So one of my thoughts is to be persistent. And that was the same thing at Google, which is we would reject people um, sometimes into one team you know, maybe we didn't hire them on the product management team for the project I was working on. They could still get hired as a product manager onto the Android team or something, or, you know, you could get passed on. So there were many people who got, who Google would pass on four times and they got hired the fifth time. So, you know, that, that works. The other thing I'd say is, I mean, I have so much on recruiting, but, <laughs> uh, you know, don't fall down on the easy questions. So like the easy questions, number one, why do you want to work here? Everyone asks that. You better be convincing. And that's not a hard question. And yet practice that answer. Um, and the other question that people fall down on is, do you have any questions for me? And I ask that at the end of any every interview. And it's such a great opportunity to like go deeper into like the financials of the business. Like you might be interviewing to be a car enthusiast, but you should know like, are we in a strong financial position? When are we going to raise money again? Do we need to like ask or whatever, whatever the sit situation is, like don't fall down on the easy questions. And you make a really good point asking those financial questions, especially when you're joining a startup specifically. I worked at a startup and I look back and I wish I asked, you know, how much runway they had and just really understand their financials because at the end of the day, you also want to have ownership of what you're getting yourself involved with. So I think that's a really good point that you brought up. And something else you mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was that so much of business's success relies on people and communication. And I think that even applies outside of business, like we talked about with relationships, whether it's with your family, your mom, your partner and friends. I'd love to hear from your perspective on what you mean by that in business and maybe some of the learnings that you've come across. Yeah. I mean, I just had to evolve a lot as a communicator. So I can give you certain things that I learned, but they're, they're kind of tactical things for me. One was verbal signposting. Um, verbal signposting was not a term I knew, but you know, if you think of sort of waving around a little sign at the beginning of the meeting um, that says, this is a brainstorming meeting. So 
this is a brainstorming meeting. Bring your ideas, like be open to ideas, get, get creative versus I've got a really tight agenda today. And like, I really need to get through a lot of stuff. So keep your brainstorming for some other meeting. <laughs> and you know, that sort of signposting actually helps a lot of people sort of know what's going on when you're communicating. Um, I think that if you, if you say, I'm going to walk into any given startup and say, and I'm going to survey the top leadership and say, what are the top three priorities right now at the company? There is probably no chance that all of the top leadership at any given company are going to tell you the same top three priorities. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe there's some startups where they would, but um, I think in general, just that need to over communicate, 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 I think is really important. Um, I learned that I'm super transparent, which um, is generally a strength, but it can be a weakness. <laughs> and so I've learned to one, be very transparent. I like to move really quickly on everything but people. Um, I think that you just can't, anything that touches people, you have to be slow and deliberate, um, which is not to say you can't like, you know, fire, hire and fire quickly and that sort of thing, but you can't just sort of brainstorm. Like, I think the org structure is a little bit wrong over in marketing. Maybe if we, you know, brought in someone else to do like the brand stuff, you can't like, you can't sort of have that level of transparency. I mean, that's an extreme example, but I think moving slowly on people is worth doing for the most part. And, you know, just balancing. I'm a transparent person. One of the people I worked with, she used the acronym RAP, Reliable, Accountable, Predictable. And it's like, she likes that sort of that sort of style. Well, wow, we had to learn how to mesh our styles because it's very different. So I just think that being at a startup, it's uh, it's a big learning on how to communicate well and how, and, you know, it's a... It's personal development where you learn what works in different circumstances. Yeah, definitely working, starting, founding a business is going to take you through a lot of personal development. And one thing I've noticed just kind of in my own entrepreneurial path is really understanding how to have tough and difficult conversations. It comes up mm -hmm. in so many different ways, you know, whether it's a tough conversation with your colleague or your boss or a vendor that you're working with. From your perspective, since you have so much experience working at a company and also founding a company, do you have any tips on how to have those tough conversations that so many of us avoid? Depends on the conversation. And, and so, you know, one thing that may be overused, but I still do it, it is ask a question. So like we went to the board meeting, one of my direct reports presented, I think it went terribly. And I come out of that meeting and I say, how do you think that went, let's say? And it might be that, that the person who presented thought that it went horribly and they are torn up inside knowing how horribly it w went. And my role then is not to pile on about how poorly it went. It might be that they thought it went smashingly in which my role might be more of a let's, let's talk about where the disconnect is. And so asking questions help you, helps you know where to plug in. And, and I also staying on sort of that, that, that sort of piece of things, I think that you have to have difficult conversations, but also one of my mentors, Frances Fry, professor at, at HBS, um, she talks about feedback needs to be five to one positive to negative. And I think she actually says sometimes it's 10 to one, like think about how you um, teach a child or think about how you teach a dog. <laughs> Um, you know, you don't beat up the dog constantly. What you do is give them treats and give them rewards. And so I do think that I try to incorporate that as a starting point, because I think it makes then when you have to have the harder conversation, 
much easier because you've been in that habit of giving praise when things are done really well. So I prefer mm -hmm. that when possible. Um, the other thing I'd say is just jumping into it because there were a lot of conversations that I avoided having. Mm -hmm. And then once I had them, um, it was just easier than I thought. So, you know, talking to the board about our need to do layoffs at one point, you know, that was just one of those where once we started talking about it, it didn't keep me up at night in the same way as it did before I started talking about it. Yeah, no, that's a good point because it's always going to be in your head and it won't really release from your subconscious until you get it out in the open. But I think those are really interesting tips. And, you know, it boils down to you really thinking about the other person, like you said, asking the question, really understanding their state of mind before coming brute force into your feedback or whatever, you know, you want to address with them. So I think that's actually three really great points you mentioned. And looking at the progress shift has made, the company's now gone public. You were there from very, very early beginning. What would you say were, you know, maybe some of the biggest overall challenges or a specific hurdle that you've overcome in running the business? I know there's probably so much that you can talk about there, but I'd love to hear more about the tough times and stories at Shift. You know, one of the hardest things was at one point, a large portion of our employees were unhappy. Mm. Um, and that was horrible, right? Like if I want to build a business, like I, I want people to be happy. I want to be providing you know, value to someone's life. Um, and so we tried so hard to do things like, you know, oh, let's have the employee of the month. Let's celebrate people. Let's, let's have, you know, lunch service. Let's whatever, you know, and, and people were unhappy. And, and fundamentally what, what the, I think really finally sort of cracked that, that piece was we just didn't have the right jobs defined essentially. So for us, we had people out in the field who were selling cars, but then we'd layered on financing. We'd layered on insurance and warranties. And the people out in the field were spending a lot of their time driving around trying to sell cars and do test drives, and then also trying to do this complicated sale. And essentially, it, it was a bad recipe. We had the business wrong. And so what we needed to do was bring all the complicated selling piece of the financing and the warranty into an inside sales team, people on the phone. And the people out in the field were more driving cars around. And we just, we were trying to, to, you know, bang our heads against a wall doing one thing. And it required fully coming up and saying, is there a different solution? Which in this case led to our layoffs, which is we had to essentially, some people, we, we kept as many people as we could, but some people were in the wrong, we'd hired the wrong people with the wrong skill set. And we needed to actually just have a different skill set for what we were doing, which involved people you know, having a centralized sales team as opposed to sort of a decentralized in the field sales team. I'm sure that was really tough to recruit people on a specific vision. And then next thing you know, you have to completely scrap the strategy. And you guys probably lost a lot of money in the process as well. You know, and it wasn't for me, it wasn't wasting the money. It was, I mean, I still have PTSD about some of the layoffs. And like, yeah. I mean, I want to say like, they're also fine, but it was also, you know, I, and I did a lot of them personally, the people who I had hired and that, you know, just mm -hmm. having to say, I'm sorry, I hired, I like, you know, I, I made you leave your other job. There was a good job. You left your job, you came here. And most of those people are all fine and very gainfully employed. And yet it was a people thing for me, but it was worse in anticipation than it was actually getting through it. I getting through it. That's great. That's a good, that's a good line for sure that we can apply to so many things in life. You know, one thing you mentioned very early on in an interview was there are certain times at shift where things were really hard. How did you stay motivated or did you ever think about quitting when you were there? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's different sorts of hard, right? 
And so, you know, it was hard. I had a second child in the middle of, you know, having, raising our series A. And, you know, for me, hard is when it's frustrating, like hard or burnout happens when I'm working really, really hard and not making progress. I can work ridiculous amounts of time if I feel like it's fulfilling, but I think burnout happens when you're working hard or not working hard, but progress isn't being made and you're just frustrated and that's burnout to me. So for me, it was it was rarely when the business was hard. Almost when the business was hard, it mo- it kicks me into like, let's solve this. Um, what when was hard was when there were um, personnel issues or like personal issues. I don't know um, when when you know when our co-founders weren't getting along. Whew, when you feel like you know does does so and so have my back? Like are we all working as a team? Like those doubts. Um, and that again goes to sort of the need to to talk that stuff out. But that was hard when we were scaling, and we brought in um, a co CEO, and that actually was probably some of that time where I was like, "Am I being orged out behind my back? Like, what's going on?" Like, and I just had insecurities. Um, but it was that was hard for me to kind of go up, show up to the office, and not know where I stood. And so that sort of stuff was harder than like, ah, oh, the business, you know, we need to rethink our, you know, our unit economics. Let's think about that. <laughs> well, it's more straightforward for yeah. sure. I mean, on the personnel side, there's so many things that I'm, people I'm sure relate to in terms of even not even having their own business, whether it's not getting promoted or someone else is coming into their position to lead some effort that they wanted. How did you deal with those def- difficult times? Were you having open communication or, you know, did you have a coach or how, how did you kind of push through those tough moments on the personnel side in the business? You know, I, I don't think I did all that well. So I don't know, like, I think in retrospect, I would have just chilled out more. Like if I could give myself advice, it'd be like, just chill out. Just don't worry about it. But like, you know, uh, someone said, well, 97% of stress is self-inflicted. And I was like, what the f- does that mean? But I think it's kind of true. Like you're putting this all on yourself, but I don't, you know, have a great solution. But um, a lot of it was actually time made things easier. So just, again, just being like, I don't, I don't know that I like this, but I'm going to show up, tell the truth, do the job, hope for the best, you know, that sort of thing. Um, even when I'm not really enjoying it, but like, you don't enjoy everything about life all the time. So, (laughs) so there was a little like, okay, I'm going to chop wood, carry water. Uh, but you know, I think in retrospect, I would have had more, more sort of just tolerance that everyone just assume positive intent. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like to do. I don't know that it always works, but always think, am I assuming positive intent here? Because I think people do have positive intent. Yeah, no, that's actually a really great point. And, you know, we can be consumed by our thoughts and create stories in our heads and it can just be this whole perpetual cycle. So I think, like like you said, just taking a step back, chilling out a a little bit, really understanding, you know, people are coming from a positive place. It's easier said than done, of course, but it's like a constant practice that we should all do, um, you know, in our lives today. So I think that's a great learnings looking back for sure. Easier said than done. (laughs) I know. And I still practice it every day on my end. So you're five years into shift, you decided to leave and, you know, you left San Francisco, came to LA and really began a new career on the investing side. So talked about some of the personnel issues that were happening at shift, but what really prompted you to leave and kind of start this new life uh, and new career? Yeah. Um, you know, like, again, like anything, like it was like 20 different things. Um, so, uh, one, I was having a third kid. So there was maternity leave as always, um, or just kids, you know, there's, there's, 
there's opportunities for changing things up. Um, and so we were, you know, as a family thinking about wanting more space. Um, and we were, you know, in a, we were kind of cramped. So we were probably going to have to move houses. Um, and meanwhile, my parents were turning 80 and they'd lived in the same house for 45 years that I grew up in and they were thinking about wanting less space. So there was a little bit of that. Um, I was wanting to be back in LA with my parents if I could. Um, and so there was a lot of just like stuff on the personal side that made it, you know, baby parents house that made it conducive to leaving. I also think tech Maybe there was sort of this aspect of I could uh, tech used to be something you had to do in San Francisco, and that was changing. Um, this was not all that long ago, right? This is like 2019, um, and you know nowadays you can really do tech from anywhere. That turned out to be way more true because I moved here without a job, so I wasn't like, oh, I'll, I'll I know what I'm going to do. I moved to LA, being like, well, let's go for it, <laughs> um, and I feel very lucky because it turns out that I love this job. But I was not like, by no means was I like, I'm going to move to LA and become a VC. I was just like, I'm going to move to LA and we'll figure it out. <laughs> and then it just turns out that like, I don't know that I would have done well or enjoyed being a VC anywhere or doing any sort of, you know, I'm definitely not like, I don't think of myself as an investor. Um, and yet I guess I am. Uh, but it's also that like David and Gil, who are my partners at 10110 are like perfect fit for me. So it, it just worked out. <laughs> For sure. And they're lucky to have you. So looking throughout your life, it seems like anytime there was a really big change, it kind of coincided with when you had your next child. I know you have three kids, all pretty young at this stage. My question for you is, how have you managed both a very successful career, you know, whether that was at Google and whether that was starting a company while having very young kids at home and a family? Yeah, uh, different thoughts. So one is... Um, so Elon Musk, let's take him as an example. <laughs> let's from motherhood to Elon Musk. Let's just go there. Yeah. Um, you know, he's like, I'm going to, what is he going to do? He's going to land a spaceship on an asteroid or something. Right. Yeah. And then I have girlfriends sometimes who are like, well, you know, I've been, I've been a, you know, a nurse practitioner and I, I kind of actually want to do something else. And I'm not sure if I can change careers. And you're like, if Elon Musk can freaking land at whatever a spaceship on an asteroid, you are allowed to say, I'm going to go to business school and I'm going to quit being a nurse. And I'm going to go to business school or whatever it is. Like it's doable. It is because like I sit all day and have entrepreneurs tell me they're going to disrupt the X, Y, Z, you know, huge thing. You know, I, and so I think there's just a giving people permission to say, yeah, if you can do that, like I can go, I want to be the mayor of Pasadena. That's not true, but like, great, go, go do that. And so one of my pieces of advice there is no one's going to help you achieve the thing that you want to do if you don't tell them that that's the thing you want to do. And so like, I had a lot of trouble actually saying that I wanted to be a VC, even though like I start, I started to think that I did want to, but like, it felt sort of presumptuous once I was in LA to just show up at all the different VCs in town and be like, hey, I just moved to town and I'd like to be a partner here. <laughs> like, And yet, once I started sort of saying that, maybe not quite like that, um, people started making introductions. People were actually able to help me meet the right people, that sort of thing. Um, but I do think one, one of my big pieces of advice is like, dream big and then be like, and then own it. And just be like, yeah, I'm going to go start a company. I'm going to go, you know, be a nurse, not be a nurse, whatever it is that you want to do. Um, that's definitely been um, helpful for me. 
I did have three kids. It was sort of crazy. I had three kids under the age of four at some period of time there. And um, I sort of, okay, here's my piece of advice on that, which is one thing that stuck with me, Susan Wojcicki um, from, she's the CEO of YouTube and whatever, Google started in her garage. She was talking and someone asked her about her decision to have five children. And she said, she said, then the question was like, you know, when is it right, you know, in my career and my mortgage and my, you know, desire to have a partner and all of that. And she just said like, when you want to have a baby, have your baby. And like the babies are so important and like your kids are so important. And like, it's, if you want to have a child, have a child and make the other stuff fit around it. And I sort of believe in that. That's good advice. And you've definitely portrayed that throughout your entire career. So another question I have for you is as someone who has invested in many different companies and now formally you're investing as a venture capitalist, what would you consider to be a great and an amazing founder? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just generally for anyone, I think it's someone who has a clear vision. So someone who's deep in an industry, um, they've been doing whatever it is. They could be a nurse, they could be doing logistics, but they understand where the gap is or where the need is extremely well. Um, and so starting there, and then usually that's coupled with another person or a team who can actually help deliver on the execution. And with 10110, we're fairly technically focused. So it's usually someone who's got that amazingly clear vision um, and they're paired with a technical co-founder, technical team, someone who's capable of realizing that. But can't emphasize enough that just the starting point is you've got a vision that you can clearly articulate uh, to me. You know, having the vision to your, in your head is not the same as having the vision that you can articulate to investors, to customers, to potential new hires. That's a really good point. We actually just had Shilpa Shah. She's the co-founder of Kuyana. And she mentioned in the early days, they would explain their vision in 15 minutes. And it was this longer convoluted explanation. And as they got clearer on their vision and mission, everything seemed to click. The customers really resonated with their messaging. Investors understood what they did. So I think that's a really important point that you brought up. I'd also love to get your perspective on any advice or tips to create a good deck if people are looking to raise money from VCs or angels? Well, nowadays there's so many templates and examples. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine to start with something that just says, you know, go to the the um, DocSend website or something. They've got all these templates of seed decks that have worked. I think that's a fine starting place. It just gives you an outline if you want. And you can say, look, you start with the problem and your vision then, and then, you know, some of the like traction and that sort of thing. But really, so that's, that's just to make you feel like you're in, like you're presenting in the way people expect. But really, it's about thinking for yourself. <laughs> And really it is, you know, it's not, don't overthink exactly what is it that makes me look like the thing someone would want, but what is it true to what I know and be able to look me in the eye and explain, I'll give you an example. People get hung up on the market size thing. And what they do is there's a template out there that every business school entrepreneurship class has that has your Tam and your Sam and your Tom. And like, People spend this time to try to slice and dice this data instead of being able to like look me in the eye and explain why it's a huge market. And like, I need to understand why you think this is a huge idea. And if you've just gone through some exercise because someone told you to go through the exercise, it shows. 
I think that's a great, great point. And I think it's, again, going back to what's authentically you, I think you can always try to be someone, whether it's at a pitch deck or an interview, but when you really tap into who you are and can look the investor or the person in the eye and be very passionate about something, I think it goes a long way versus making sure every single aspect of your deck is perfect or whatever you think, you know, the definition of perfect is. So I think that's a really great point. And uh, one question I'd love to ask that we love to ask all of our guests is wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? It's it's changed a lot for me. I, I, I spend a lot more time think I spend a lot of time thinking about am I competing on the right things? Because I'm kind of competitive and I like being competitive, but I can compete on the wrong thing and I can go build a successful business, let's say, and that's not it. That's not wealth for me. That's not success. If it's just successful in terms of, you know, dollars and cents, like probably a lot of it for me still comes um, from some like desire to please my mother, if you want to like dig deep in the, but like, I do think like, what is something that would make my parents proud, which is probably like, what have you done to make the world a better place? Um, was what I was asked every day when I came home from school. And I still think that rings true for me is like, what have I done to make the world a better place? And I try to think about how do I compete on that and not on, you know, having the best um, TVPI for, you know, venture fund returns. How do you not get into the mindset of comparing yourself to others, right? You were saying you can kill it in something, but it has to be true to you and what you want to be competitive in. So how do you kind of not go through comparison analysis in your own head, you know, at every aspect of your professional life? Um, well, I still do. <laughs> and like every time I have a like success, it's like, oh, well, I went to school with Marissa Mayer. Um, she was my, she was a year ahead of me at Stanford and then she was more successful and then she was, you know, better looking. And then she became the CEO of Yahoo and this, that, you know, it's always, so there's always someone to aspire to. Um, I guess it's to, to change a mindset from like, how am I, you know, am I competing with Marissa? No. Is she a role model? Yes. And so actually it's looking at people who you can learn from and, um, and, and saying, you know what, the people who are, who I admire, let me deliberately stay close to them rather than mm. see it as somehow competitive, but let me deliberately make sure that I stay in contact with the people who I, um, I admire and want to sort of lead a life more like them. That's so beautiful. I love that, Minnie. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us and share all about your story. And, you know, I'm so glad we were able to connect today. Yasmin, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.